Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Golden Skull by John Blaine. Volume 4, Chapter 7, Igorot Country. Rick and Scotty awoke the next morning with a feeling of well-being. After the heat of Manila and the cool air of Bagueo had caused them to sleep like logs. Also, things appeared to be going well, and Chada had finally contacted them. The contact had been a brief one. Chada had gone, promising to keep in touch with them as best he could. The Hindu boy was on the trail of James Nast, hoping that by keeping close watch he could anticipate and perhaps prevent any action that Nast might try to take against the Spindrift party. Dog meat, Rick said, grinning as the two knocked on Tony Briotti's door. It may be a fine old ceremonial name in this part of the world, but to me, it's just a meal for Dismal. Dismal was the Brant family pup. When Rick thought of the pagans eating dog, he always thought of Dismal served up as a roast, and the thought made him ill. He had decided he might admire the fine qualities of the Igorot and the Ifugwe people, but the mental image of Dismal among the poor beaten mongrels in the dog market would always keep him from being really fond of them. Tony failed to answer the door. Probably went down to breakfast already, Scotty said. He rubbed his chin thoughtfully. Chada won't have much trouble finding Nast. Baguio isn't very big, and there aren't very many Americans. I wonder what Nast will try to do. Rick shrugged. How can we guess? There are so many things about this part of the world we don't know. He might have two dozen slick tricks up his sleeve. The best thing that we could do is be on guard all the time. I'm glad we sent Angel out to guard the plane. As they passed the hotel desk, the clerk hailed them. Mr. Brent, a message for you. Probably from Chada, Rick said. But he was wrong. The note was from Tony, and it made Rick's eyes widen. He read it aloud. Dear boys, woke up at dawn with something nagging at me. It broke through my thick skull while I was having coffee. The Ufugwe, no palate, must be Nangolat. It's the name Okala mentioned. His prized student. I know of no other Ufugwe with an even less remote connection. Also, the shape of Angel's face bothers me. I'm going to the airport on a hunch. Be back at about eight with Angel. Scotty points to a wall clock. It was nearly nine o'clock. They had slept late. The two boys, without a word, ran for the door. Outside, a Filipino taxi waited. They jumped in and gasped in one voice. Baguio Airport! That guy's a chucklehead, Scotty groaned. Why didn't he wake us up? Why'd he have to go alone? Relax, Rick said, but he didn't really mean it. It was just an idea that he had that this Ifugwe might be tied up with Angel. After all, Akola recommended Angel. He recognized the fallacy in his argument as soon as the words were out, but Scotty was already pointing to it. Yeah, Angel is Akola's boy, and so is this Nangalat. What's more likely than their being close friends? Angel could be giving Nangalat a helping hand. The taxi climbed the winding streets of Bagueo, then passed the American military rest camp. 
and the Baguio residence of the American ambassador, and finally entered the airport. One quick look around the field showed that the truck was missing. The sky wagon was waiting by itself. On Rick's quick instructions, the taxi raced to the plane. They got out and took a quick look around. Well, there's no sign of damage, Scotty said. Let's ask the airport office. The office was closed. It was operated by Philippine Airlines and was only kept open during the day, starting one hour before the day's first flight to Manila or from the big city. The first flight on this day was not until 10.30. A pair of workmen with shovels were scratching listlessly at the gravel on the opposite side of the field. The boys jumped into the taxi and told the driver to cross the field. Rick leaned out. Did you see a truck? The men smiled and nodded. How long ago? Rick called. The men smiled some more and then shrugged. The Filipino cab driver spoke to them in Ilocano, the Christian dialect of the province. They answered briefly and smiled to the boys again and went back to scratching at the gravel. Apparently they were supposed to be leveling the shoulders of the runway. If so, the shoulders would be stooped with age before they were finished. The Filipino cab driver turned to the boys. Sir, these men don't see the truck. They be here since maybe two hours. No truck. But they said they did, Scotty exclaimed. Rick interrupted. Ask them if they saw an American alone. The driver exchanged quick syllables with the workman. They say they see American. He get in sedan, which was waiting for him, and then he go off. Who was in the sedan? Again, the driver translated. They did not see it on other side of field. Only know maybe three men, maybe American, maybe Filipino. They not know. Take us back to the hotel, Rick commanded, and thanks for interpreting for us. They said they saw the truck, Scotty insisted. Rick shook his head. Remember what Tony once told us? Never ask a question that can be answered yes or no, or the answer will be yes, whether that's the answer or not. That's as true in the Philippines as it is in China or anywhere else in the Orient. I don't think they saw the truck, but I'm sure they did see Tony go off in a sedan. I'm worried, Scotty. Same. Of course, the men in the sedan could have just offered Tony a lift back to the hotel. What were they doing at the airport? The sign on the office door said the first flight to Manila was at 10.30. No one uses the field but PAL. A few travelers like us and maybe military planes. I don't believe we just got a lift, but it's a possibility. We'll know soon. Driver, please hurry. The Filipino grinned. Sorry, would like to please customer, but hurry on these roads. Is break the necks, I think so. He's right, Scotty agreed. We'll get there soon enough. Within a few moments, they were back at the hotel. Rick paid the driver and thanked him for the help. Then they ran in and confronted the clerk. Is Dr. Briotti back? I haven't seen him, gentlemen. Just a moment, please. The clerk looked in Tony's box. His key is not here. Have you called his room? Not yet. Would you have seen him if he came in? Rick asked. Perhaps, perhaps not. I've been doing some paperwork, gentlemen. Unless he came to the desk, I might not notice him. The boys nodded their thanks and hurried up the stairs to Tony's room. 
They tried the door, then knocked loudly. There was no answer. They knocked again and waited, then stared at each other bleakly. Now what? Rick had a feeling that Tony was in danger. He didn't know why he felt that way when the news they had was only that he had gone off in a sedan with three men. The workman hadn't said that he had fought or that he had been pulled into the car. He voiced his thoughts as he followed Scotty to their room. That means nothing. He probably wouldn't argue with a gun pointing out the window at him. The workman probably wouldn't have noticed a pistol barrel. You're right, as usual. Well, what now? Call the cops? And what are we going to say? Tony hasn't been gone more than an hour or two, as far as we know. That's not reason enough to call the cops. We couldn't tell them about Chada and what he said. They wouldn't believe any such stories about their assistant secretary of the interior. And if they did, they'd probably be afraid to do much about it. If Tony doesn't show up in another hour or two, we should probably call the police then. But not yet. Scotty had worn a jacket because the morning was cool. But now the room was warm, and he went to the closet to hang it up. Hey, Tony must have taken the earth scanner with him. Rick was in the act of sitting down on the bed, but he bounced up like a rubber ball. What? He couldn't have. Well, it's gone. Who else would have taken it? Tony didn't. He hasn't been in this room except last night when Chada was here. And he didn't take the scanner then. Scotty snapped his fingers. You gave Angel your key. Told him to clean up. Rick slumped down on the bed again. That was it. It had to be. No one else had had the chance to get the equipment, barring the possibility that the hotel personnel were dishonest, and there was no reason to suspect them. Then the equipment went with him last night, and we didn't notice until now. But we would have noticed if it had been gone, wouldn't we? I've been to the closet a dozen times, and so have you. Well, that doesn't mean anything. I don't know why I noticed just now if the stuff was gone but there was nothing to call our attention to it last night or this morning. Anyway, it was behind my big suitcase. I know. I knocked the suitcase over when I closed the closet door this morning. I didn't stop to pick it up. It's still on its side. That's why I noticed that the earth scanner wasn't there. If we needed any proof that Angel is a bad one, probably in cahoots with Nangolat, then we have it. Scotty, what are we going to do? Call the cops, Scotty said grimly. Now we have a theft report. He strode for the phone, but before he could pick it up, there was a sharp ring. Scotty answered. Yeah? He listened, hung up hastily, and turned to Rick. Clerk says there's a Filipino in the lobby. He wants to see us. Says he knows us. Chada. It's got to be him. He's posing as a pagan of some kind, and we don't know any other Filipinos. Rick's thoughts were expressed as he and Scotty ran down the hall and then took the stairs four at a time. That's not Chada. Scotty pointed to the big Filipino, who was striding back and forth in front of the desk. The man was Scotty's size and built in about the same proportions. Around his head was what at first glance appeared to be a kind of turban. At second glance, the boys saw that it was a thick bandage. The Filipino saw them and came toward them in quick strides. His face probably was pleasant most of the time, but now it was grim, his mouth creased in lines of pain. 
Mr. Brandt and Mr. Scott. Yeah, Rick said. And who are you? I am Angel Monotop. Chapter 8 The Bontoc Road Dr. Okola instructed me in what I was to do, the real Angel Monotoc said. Nangolat was present. He was very helpful. He even gave me the name of an Ifugwe priest who would help us, a man by the name of Poison. Angel didn't seem to think the name was odd, so Rick didn't say anything about it. I live alone, Angel continued. I went home that evening to pack my stuff, so I'd be ready to go to the hotel to meet you early in the morning. Nangolat was waiting, and he had a gun. He made me turn around, and then he said, Angel, I am sorry. I only do this for the good of my people, not for myself. There was a great blow to the back of my head, and I knew nothing more. I woke up in St. Luke Hospital. They said I had a fractured skull, but they were wrong. Thank heavens! You were lucky! So lucky, Angel agreed. What I can never know is why Nangolat did not take my head. Before I thought he was a very civilized and intelligent person. But when I saw him in my Nipa hut, he was crazy. He did not talk crazy, but he was. It was in his eyes. When I saw him and the gun in his hand, and then I saw his eyes, I knew I was dead. But I did not know why, because he was my friend. Do you know why now? Scotty asked. No, it does not matter. It only matters he was my friend and he gave me no chance. He did not fight me, although we are evenly matched. He struck me from behind. I will go with you now to the Ufugwe country, and perhaps we will find this Nangolat. When I find him, I will know what to do. Angel's tone was not angry, nor did he sound as though he were threatening. It was as though he had said that tomorrow it would rain. But Rick and Scotty decided they would not like to be in Nangolat's shoes. Did you tell Dr. Cola? Scotty asked. For the first time, Angel's eyes fell. No, I was ashamed to him. Rick recognized the odd phrase as a literal translation from the Spanish idiom. He understood why Angel had not told Ocola. The Filipino archaeologist had entrusted the Americans to Angel's care, and Angolat had taken his place. It didn't matter that Angel couldn't help it. He had lost face. He would not return to Ocola until he had made amends. If your head was so badly hurt that the doctors thought your skull was fractured, I'm surprised they let you out of the hospital, Rick said. They did not let me. I walked out. Then I caught rides until I got into Bagueo, just a few minutes ago. If you had not been here, I would have followed you to Bontoc. Scotty asked, Angel, what do you know of Mr. Irenio Lazada? Angel spat. He has power. He has many friends. All his friends are thieves. Some are mighty thieves. But he is the greatest one of all. The secretary who is his boss is a fine man, and he will believe no evil of this Lazada. No one will speak against him, so the secretary and president can hear. Because if such words are spoken, the body of the speaker will be found floating down the passing the next morning. This is understood by all and those who have proof against him are afraid. I have no proof, or I would speak myself. To know is one thing, to prove is another. Do you know an American named Nast? 
Yes, he is a smuggler. Again, there is no proof. Sometimes the ones who smuggle for him are caught, but he is not, because he does no smuggling himself. What does he smuggle? Rick asked. He was searching for some clue that might be useful. Anything, from what I know, Chinese cannot get visas to enter the Philippines. He brings many of them up from Borneo, crude rubber, gems from Siam. He used to run guns, but the supply ran out. They were American war surplus guns. They were stolen by the truckload after the war and sold to smugglers like Nast. Now there are no more. What's Lazada's tie-up with Nast? Angel shrugged. This is gossip. Lazada has a yacht. Who would search the private yacht of the great assistant secretary? Even though it is well known that the yacht had been to Macau or Hong Kong and was loaded with contraband. Rick swiftly outlined the events of the morning to Angel. We've got to find Dr. Briotti, he concluded. What do you suggest? Angel thought it over, now and then raising a hand gingerly to his bandaged head. Everything Nast wants is in the Ifuigwo country, no? He can only want the gold, and it is there. When Dr. Okola told me of this golden skull you seek, I was afraid. There are many bad men in the Philippines who want gold, and now Nast is after it. Many others. I do not think Nangolat wants gold, but he is Ifugwe. Also, his interest is in the Ifugwe country. It can be nowhere else. Angel's English sometimes had a queer, rather formal phrasing, but it was very clear. And so, apparently, were his thoughts. Rick accepted his idea about everything pointing to the Ifugwe country. Then I guess we should go to Ifugwe. You have a plane. We should fly over the road to Bontoc, look for the truck and the sedan with Dr. Briotti. If we see them, we can come back to Bagueo and telephone. The road to Bontoc is one way only. Only one car at a time can travel. One way? Scotty inquired. You can't mean that. How would people get back and forth? I am not clear, Angel apologized. What I mean is the road is too narrow for cars going both ways, so the road has been divided in parts by gates. Maybe a car is going to Bontoc. It arrives at gate one. The gatekeeper lets it through, then calls gate two and says he has a car come north. Maybe another car is going from Bontoc to Bagueo. It reaches gate two and the gatekeeper makes him wait until the car from gate one reaches him. Then he lets the car from Maguayo go through and calls the gatekeeper at gate one and says a car is coming. Then he lets the car going to Bontoc go through his gate and calls gate three and says that a car is coming. I see, Scotty nodded. One gate at a time. A car might be able to go through three or four gates and then have to wait for a car coming the other way. That is right. There are many gates. I forget exactly how many. Also, to get from Bontoc to Bonaue, there is a road with gates. Bonaue was in the Fuque country, in the heart of the rice terraces. It was their destination. Let's go, Rick said. He had worked out a plan. The plane could scout the road quickly and easily. By air, it was only a short distance to Bontoc but by road it was several hours of driving because of the twists and turns. If they could spot the truck or a sedan with four men in it, they could return to Baguio and phone 
and the vehicles would be held up at one of the many gates. Scotty's thoughts were apparently the same, because Rick knew exactly what he meant when he said, The sedan will give us trouble. We'll just have to hope that we can fly low when we see one and try to catch a look at the people in it. That won't be very satisfactory, Rick responded. When we get to the airport, we'll have Angel pump those workmen some more, if they're still there. Like a pair of real meatheads, we forgot to ask for details, like what the color of the van was. They were fortunate. The workmen were still pecking away at the roadway shoulder, and they did recall the color of the stand. It was dark green, but they didn't know enough about cars to know the make, and they had noticed no special details. Have you flown before? Rick asked Angel. Yes, but not in such a little plane. Only the big PAL planes. The airline's office was open now. Rick got his keys, arranged for gasoline, and they moved the Skywagon into position. There was plenty of gas for a short trip, but he was taking no chances. He wanted a full tank. It took time to recheck the plane carefully to make sure Nongolat had not sabotaged it. Then, finally, they were on their way. Scotty had a map spread across his knees, and Angel had another. Scotty's map showed topological details like the height of mountains and their contours. Angel had an excellent road map distributed by one of the American gasoline companies that maintained service stations in many parts of the islands. Angel watched the roads and Scotty the mountains, and they got to Bontoc Road with no trouble. Rick climbed until they could see for miles. It was the only way to follow the torturous route of the road as it wound between mountains, hugged the sides of high peaks, and dipped into forested valleys. Now and then they could see an Igorot village far below, but this was mostly uninhabited country. On Scotty's map, not so far away, were great white patches marked with a single word, unexplored. It seemed incredible that after nearly 50 years of American government, and a few years of independence, the island of Luzon, the seat of the capital, had unexplored areas. But there it was, it was true. Rick knew that he need not watch the road carefully for a little while, except to follow it. If the truck and sedan were headed for Bontoc on Bonaue, they had a good start. He doubted they were traveling together. You know, he said, we're not so smart. I've always known that. Scotty replied. But what have we done this time that's especially stupid? We could have phoned the first gate and asked if the truck and sedan had passed. Scotty groaned. Oh, we are so stupid. You're right. Angel spoke from the rear seat. Oh, that is true. It is my fault. I am ashamed to you that I did not think of it. Rick suspected that it hurt Angel to be so humble and admit that he was ashamed. He looked like a proud man, one used to holding his head high. We like Nongolot, he said. We thought he was Angel Monotok. He had all of your papers. We didn't doubt him because he looked like a fine man. We were taken in all right. Angel seemed to cheer up a little. Yes, then perhaps you understand how it was easy for him to catch me and try to kill me, but I also liked him and thought he was my friend. Well, that's easy to understand. No one can blame you, Angel, Scotty told the Filipino. You're good to say it, Angel replied. He seemed somewhat relieved. Rick knew that they had made a friend by expressing their understanding. Before, 
Angel would have done his best because of Ocola. Now, he thought, Angel would do his best because he knew they were friendly and understood how a man's pride can be hurt, even when it is not his fault. We better start keeping an eye peeled, Scotty advised. They flew in silence, inspecting the road below. There was almost no traffic. Since leaving Trinidad Valley, they had only seen the Bontoc bus, a brilliant orange speck on the road below, and two jeeps. They identified the gates easily once they passed a gate where a southbound panel truck waited. Rick knew that the truck driver couldn't know what kind of vehicle he waited for, but from the air it could be seen that the Montauk bus was the only moving thing between the two gates. The sky wagon was just above the tops of a series of mountain peaks and steep ridges. The road clung to the sides of the peaks like a dusty brown ribbon. Rick turned up the heater a little because it was cold at 8,000 feet. Then he lost the road. So did Aunt Helen Scotty. Astonished, Rick circled. He picked up the road again, followed it, and lost it once again. Where does it go? He wondered aloud. Well, let's go see, Scotty suggested. Rick examined the terrain. Their quarry might be on the lost section of the road. He had the choice of going down for a look or finding where the road emerged and circled for a while. He elected to go down. The sky wagon lost altitude in a long slip toward the valley floor. Rick and the others kept an eye on the point where the road vanished, and in a few moments the mystery was solved. The road reached a cliff approximately a mile long and a half mile wide. The road was about two-thirds of the way up. To get past the cliff, it had been necessary to cut a shelf into the cliff itself. Wow! Notching that cliff must have been some job, Scotty exclaimed. No wonder we couldn't see the road from the air. Rick flew parallel to the cliff until he had to climb to get over a ridge. Below, the road emerged from the overhang and was clearly visible again. He gained altitude. Just a happy thought, he said. Wouldn't it be nice if the weather closed in? Here we are flying visual contact through some of the trickiest mountains I've ever seen. I'm going to keep an eye on the compass. You two concentrate on the road. If we do get weather, I want to be able to fly a reasonable course back to Baguio. Didn't you get a weather briefing at the airport? Scotty asked. Yeah, such as it was. Mostly it was local Baguio conditions and a brief report on Manila. Something ahead, Angel called. I see it. Scotty answered. A truck of some kind. Take a look, Rick. Rick surveyed the landscape ahead and saw that he could not get into difficulty by losing altitude and went down for a look. He couldn't get closer than a thousand feet, but that was ample. It was a load of lumber, although the truck was much like theirs. What color is it? Scotty asked. Hard to tell. Ours was gray. This one looks brown. It could be dust, Angel offered. Dirt from the road below. Very dusty. But there are lumber mills up in this part of the province. Perhaps that is just one of their trucks. You had no lumber, did you? No. Our truck only had two crates on it. Besides, Angel, I mean, Nangalot, must be far beyond this point. He left last night early. How do you know? Angel asked curiously. Yeah. Scotty echoed. You sound pretty sure of that. 
He got the scanner, didn't he? There was a risk that we might find out that it was gone. He wouldn't hang around the airport knowing that we might find out about the theft, would he? Good point, Scotty agreed. I heard of this earth scanner, Angel said. Dr. Cola told me. It takes pictures of what is inside the ground, no? Well, not exactly pictures. It shows kind of a wave pattern. You'll see how it works, Scotty said. Rick snorted. Every the optimist, what makes you so sure? We'll get it back, Scotty said calmly. No smarter Fugway is going to do us in the eye, chum. Not without a fight. We'll find Tony, we'll find the scanner. Then we'll clobber Nongolot. Or let Angel do it. What do we do about Nast? We get nasty with Nast. Rick groaned. That pun pal is strictly cornball. I've always wanted to be a pun pal, Scotty said. Forehead green shelves gave a regular pattern to the base of one mountain. Rick pointed them out to Angel. What's that? Igorot rice terraces. Igorot? I thought that rice terraces were Ifugwe. Igorots have them too. They are not so... I don't have a word for it. Big, you know, make one's eyes open in wonder. Very fine. The kind of thing that makes you feel surprised here. Angel put his hand on his stomach. Breathtaking? Scotty suggested. Spectacular? Yes, both. These Igorot terraces are nothing. Wait until you see the terraces at Bonawea. Three pairs of eyes scanned the road ahead. It was deserted. Tell us about rice, Rick asked. There was rice below when we flew to Baguio, too. Yes, a great deal of rice. You passed over Papanga province, which is called the rice bowl of the Philippines. That rice is grown in paddies, which are fields with little earth walls around them called dikes. The paddies can be flooded. Rice needs much water. Down there, though, the land is flat. Scotty pointed to a razorback ridge. Well, this land sure isn't flat. No, but the Igorot and the Fugue workers make it flat by building terraces. Each terrace is like a little paddy. It can be flooded, just like the lowland paddies are. The water comes from the mountains in pipes made of bamboo. That must be quite a water system, Rick observed. Yes, there are miles of bamboo pipes, but no water is wasted. The water is put into the upper terraces, then it runs by itself in openings down to the lower terraces. Is the rice the same? Nearly. There is another kind called highland rice that is planted like wheat. We have a little wheat, too, but not enough to feed very many people. The highland rice is not very good. Paddy rice is much better. Rick was interested. He continued his questioning. Are the paddies flooded all the time? Oh, no, they are flooded before the rice is planted. You know, we do not plant rice seed in the paddies. We plant baby rice plants which are grown in special places. The little plants are pushed into the mud after the paddy is flooded. Then the water is left for a while. But if we left it all the time, the plants would rot. So after a while, we let the water out and only let in enough to keep the rice growing. They were over the terraces now. Beyond them, Rick saw brown houses that looked like beehives. It was an Igorot village. We will reach Bontok soon, Angel said. No truck, no sedan, Scotty added unhappily. 
They couldn't have reached Bantog, could they? The truck could have easily if Nongolot drove during the night. Then we'll have to keep hunting past Bontoc right into Bonaway. Angel tapped Rick on the shoulder and pointed ahead. There is Bontoc. Nestled in the mountains on the bank of a river was the town of Bontoc, a small cluster of wooden and grass houses. Rick saw that the dirt road had changed to a blacktop. I'm going to look for a place to land, Scotty nodded. Great idea. Rick waited until the town was directly below, then sized up the terrain and began to lose altitude in a tight spiral. It was in situations like this that the sky wagon's flaps came in handy. He pulled the control down and the movable sections on the trailing edges of the wings moved down in response, and he began to lose speed. When he was 500 feet over the town, he flew parallel to the road, searching for wires and other hazards. There were wires, but they entered the town from the south and then branched west toward Bonaway. To the north, there were no wires, nor any other hazards he could see, and the road looked level. He picked a stretch on the edge of the little town, where the houses were far apart. They were primitive little dwellings made of straw, tied together in bundles. He hoped his prop wash wouldn't blow them apart. Hang on, here we go. The movement of rice stalks in a paddy near the road gave him wind direction. He should land from the north. He circled, got into position, and started in. Scotty leaned forward, eyes peeled for obstructions. There was excitement in the town below. People in western clothes and scant breech claws or tight skirts of the Igorots were running into the open to see what was making the racket. Rick hurried the landing a little, afraid the people would clutter up the strip of road he had chosen. He put the sky wagon down with no sign of a bump and brake to a stop. Then, because children were getting near, outstripping their elders in a haste to see the plane, Rick quickly cut the engine. Two Igorot boys, perhaps 14 years old, were the first to reach the plane as the three climbed out. The Igorots had the chopped-off bull haircut, and they wore breech cloths and little else. They stared at the plane wide-eyed, then one said something to his friend in guttural Igorot. Angel Monotok grinned. Rick asked, Did you understand? Yes, I speak Igorot. Scotty said, They were probably talking about the great skybird, right, Angel? Angel's grin broadened. Not exactly. The English equivalent would be slang. What he said corresponded to, Hey, bud, get a load of the real snazzy four-placed job, and dig that retractable landing gear. The boy who had spoken looked at Angel with suspicion. You know Igorot, he accused. Angel chuckled. And you're no Englishman, but you speak English. The boy laughed. Okay, Mac. My name Pilly Pill. I learned plenty plain stuff at Clark. Dig holes there for pay. See many planes. Rick and Scotty got over their amazement. It was obvious that the boys were more than 14. Their short stature and unlined faces were deceptive. How old are you, Pilly Pill? 18. Rick wanted to know more about the boy who had worked as a laborer at the American Air Force Base at Clark Field, but there was no time because the rest of the crowd had arrived. The boys found themselves surrounded by Filipinos and Igorots, all chattering with obvious excitement and interest. A Filipino, who was obviously someone of importance, pushed his way through the crowd. 
He was dressed in a business suit, complete with starched shirt and tie, an odd rig for such a primitive village as Montauk. The man was smoking a cigar with one hand and carrying a cane with the other. He hung the cane over the wrist of the cigar hand and held out the other. I am the district road commissioner. Leocadio de los Santos at your service. Mr. Lazada informed me in my letter that I was to place my entire resources at your disposal. You are Mr. Brandt, Mr. Scott, and Dr. Briotti. Dr. Briotti is not with us, Rick replied. This is Mr. Monotok. Ah, delighted. Please come to my office so we may talk quietly. Rick looked doubtful. We shouldn't leave the plane. Do not fear, it will be perfectly safe. Santos switched to the native language, speaking briefly and with authority. The crowd obediently fell back a few paces, leaving a cleared area around the plane. The road commissioner had the situation under control all right. Nonetheless, Angel Monotok said, I will wait here. Rick nodded. That was best. He and Scotty followed Santos to the office, a few hundred feet down the road. The office was on the second floor of a frame building. The first floor was a work area filled with tools, including a bulldozer and a road scraper. Before discussing business, Santos insisted on refreshment. He clapped his hands, and a dungaree-clad Filipino workman appeared. Santos spoke. In a few moments, the workman reappeared. Both boys were surprised when he offered them their favorite American beverage, Coca-Cola. It seemed strange to be sipping Coke in a place inhabited by primitive people clad in breech cloths. Rick got down to business. Can you find out if a truck and a green sedan have passed through Bontoc? What kind of truck, please? Rick described it. We don't have the make of the sedan. It may have had five men in it. He couldn't believe that the sedan had reached Bontoc, however. Santos picked up his phone and reached down and whirled a crank. The phone rang. He spoke Ilocano into it, then received a reply from the other end. He spoke again, then hung up. That was the gateman at the edge of town. No truck and no sedan have passed through here today. Chapter 9. The Fugue Country There was only one difficulty, but it was a major one. Rick didn't know whether or not the district road commissioner could be believed. After all, Santos was Lizada's man. The boys finished their coke before Rick decided on a course of action. If Santos was lying, they would find out soon enough. So for the present, they would assume he was telling the truth, and that he could be trusted. Is the province peaceful up this way? Rick asked. Oh, yes, Santos replied. It's usually very peaceful. Sometimes on the road south here is a holdup, but the Igorots in Bontoc and the Ifugues upon a way cause no trouble. Glad to hear it, Scotty said. When we start digging, some of the Ifugues may get upset. Glad to hear they're not often riled up. What are your plans? Santos asked. Rick shrugged. It's hard to know where to begin. Before we plan our campaign to locate the place where we dig, we have to survey the terraces. Is there any sort of field where I could land at Barwee? No, Santos replied with great positiveness. Once you see the terraces, you will see for yourself. There is no place. Rick stood up and Scotty followed suit. I think perhaps we'd better fly over to Bunaway and see the terraces. Then we'll have a better understanding of our problems. 
Thank you for your hospitality, Mr. De Los Santos. It is nothing, but tell me, isn't there another in your party, another American? Yes, how did you know? The assistant secretary of the interior phoned personally. He described all of you and said to do everything possible to make your visit interesting and successful. Well, that was very good of him, Rick said. We'll be back again, perhaps tomorrow. Will you be here? I believe so. If I am not, it will be because I am inspecting a road section. Never am I gone long. Santos lingered to give instructions in the native language to one of his men, and Rick took advantage of the few seconds to whisper to Scotty, I'll stall him. Get back to the plane. Have Angel make a deal with those Igorot boys to keep an eye on the road. I want another spy in Bontoc besides someone we know as Lazada's man. You know what's needed. Scotty did. He hurried off to do what was necessary. Rick waited for Santos, then asked the commissioner to point out the road to Bonaway. I plan to follow the road in my plane. Do you think that'll be all right? Santos did. You may lose the road in the clouds as you cross the top of the mountain range that divides the Igorot tribe from the Fugues, but you should be able to see Bonaway when you come back here after you have seen the terraces. Not today. We'll probably be back tomorrow in a jeep. The plane is handy, but we can't land in Manawe, you say. You will see, and I will see you tomorrow. Then you can tell me how the terraces look from the air. Better still, Rick promised. Next time I have the plane here, I'll take you to see for yourself. Scotty winked as Santos and Rick approached the plane, and Rick knew that Scotty and Angel had been able to make a deal with Pilly Pill, the Igorot boy and his friend. The party shook hands with Santos, then climbed into the plane. The crowd of natives moved away from the road as Rick started the engine, then turned the plane and taxied down the road to the takeoff position he had selected. He was a little nervous for fear a child might dart into the road while he was picking up flight speed, but the crowd was well-disciplined and held steady as the sky wagon roared past and climbed. We now have Pilly Pill and his pal working for us. Scotty said when they were airborne. They're smart boys, Angel added. They'll be able to report on every car and every person passing through Bontoc from now until we get back. Rick nodded. Good, but I'm still worried. We've done everything we could think of, but there's no payoff. We still haven't found Tony. We were sure whoever kidnapped him would head for the Ifugwe country, but there were no sedans on the road today. How do we know Tony isn't hidden somewhere near Bagueo? How do we know he's still alive? Scotty put a hand on his shoulder. Why wouldn't he be alive? Who would gain anything by killing him? We have to remember that the whole gimmick here in this business is the Golden Skull. Nass wants it, Nongolot wants it, Lazada wants it, and we want it, and nobody has it. Rick gained altitude, steadily keeping an eye on the twisting road below. All right, I'll go along with your reasoning for now. Whoever wants the Golden Skull has to go to Bonaway to find it. It can't be found unless by a lucky accident without the Earth Scanner. And who has the Earth Scanner? Nangolot? Can he use it? Nope. Rick shrugged. Tony can use the scanner, though. We suspect that Nast has Tony. The question is, what is the relationship between Nangolot and Nast?
Below the sky wagon and the green mountains marched in a series of ridges from horizon to horizon. This was the divide between Igorot and Ufugwe country. Rick let the conversation lag as he searched below and ahead for a landmark. There was a little cloud cover around him, as Santos had predicted. Then the cloud was passed, and the three looked down into the great valley of Manawe. Rick and Scotty gasped. It was incredible. As far as they could see, the mountains on either side of the valley were sculpted into irregular green steps, or terraces. The smallest terrace was perhaps only a few feet square, while the larger ones were the size of a football field. They rose in an irregular triangle right to the base of the clouds. There was no particular pattern. The Ifugwe farmers had simply used every possible inch of space to make terraces for the growing of rice. In some places, the step from one terrace to the next was only a foot or two. In other places, the step up to the terrace above was 40 feet. The retaining walls of the terraces were native stone, irregular pieces laid together by expert Ifugwe masons without benefit of mortar or concrete. The same method had been used to make the Great Wall of China. Rick found his voice. I've seen pictures, but they didn't even tell part of the story. This is fantastic. It's the most wonderful job of engineering I've ever seen, Scotty agreed. And when you think that the engineers are primitive people with only hand tools, that makes it even more wonderful. Angel had seen the terraces before, he said, but added, I'm glad to see them from the air. You can understand now why Santos said there was no place to land. Rick could certainly understand this. The only level places of the entire valley were the flat surfaces of the terrace, and no terrace was large enough to land on. In fact, most of the terraces were too small even for the Sabu, the native water buffalo, to drag a plow across them. The Fugue rice planters had to farm their terraces by hand. There was no use looking for a landing place in the immediate vicinity of Manawea. We'd better take a swing down the valley just to get a good look and then head back for Bagueo, Rick said. Good idea. We need to lay some plans and then get busy. Can you fly fairly low? Yeah, there's enough room in the valley to make turns so we don't get trapped. Let's go down and look. The town of Banaway was easy to find. A double row of stores was situated on a single unpaved street atop a slight plateau in the valley bottom. The sky wagon sped over it, bringing the storekeepers and their few customers running out to look. The Ifugues live in villages around the valley, Angel said. He pointed to one or two of them, clinging to the mountainside between terraces. The huts were of straw bundles, discolored by smoke and dust. The stores have kerosene, thread, matches, tobacco, salt, oil, perhaps a little cloth, the Ifugues do not need much, or if they need it, they do not know that they do. Rick thought that went over as he climbed out of the valley and set a compass course south to Bagueo. The course would intersect the Bontoc Road, which he would then follow into town. What's our next step? he asked. We gotta find Tony, of course. I have a hunch that we weren't thorough enough in looking over Bontoc Road. Nongo Lot had to be on it. Where else could he go? Where else would he go? That lumber could have been camouflage, Angel offered. 
Rick's first reaction was to ask what lumber. Then he remembered that an army truck like theirs, but loaded with lumber, had been on the Bontoc Road. Of course! Who would suspect a load of lumber? Especially since this is lumber country. Scotty nodded. It's possible. Tomorrow, we'll go back to Bontoc, and if Nongolot was driving that lumber truck, Pilly Pill and company will know it. Tonight, we'll cover Baguio again to make sure our enemies aren't still around. Perhaps we can find Chada. If we haven't found Dr. Briati by tomorrow night, Angel said, we should go to the police. There's someone else we'll visit first, Rick said grimly, and that's Mr. Uranio Lazada. <laughs>